Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and today's episode is with Zoe Coombs-Ma. If you don't know Zoe Coombs-Ma, then you should get to know her and the best way to do that is by watching her special Bossy Bottom on Amazon Prime. Now, there may be many good reasons that you don't want to support Amazon and I am absolutely fine with that, but what you can do with Amazon Prime is you can sign on for a 30-day free trial and then you can watch uh, Zoe's special, Bossy Bottom. You could watch Tom Walker's special, which she directed, called Very, Very. Uh, Celia Pacola's special and Edmund's special is on there as well. Alice Fraser's special. I went and saw all those shows when they were performed live, so you might even be able to hear me laughing in the audience. Yeah, that's the reason to watch. Uh, Zoe's show, Bossy Bottom, as we get into a little bit in this chat that we recorded now a couple of months ago, just for context. Uh, I banked a bunch of episodes to get me through the time when I'm taping Gruen, and uh, this is just one that has been sitting on the back burner for a little while, looking for the perfect time to release it, and so now is that time. Sign up to Amazon Prime, even just for the free month. Watch all the great Australian comedy specials there, and then you can just, you know, go, sorry, sorry, Jeff, you don't need my money. See you later. There's a couple of other good things on Amazon Prime you might want to watch while you're there. And then you can just... Anyway, I've got Amazon Prime, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, there you go. You can do that. And also, another streaming service is Stan. And Zoe was part of Stan's Australian Lockdown Comedy Festival. And I was also a part of that. So you can watch the episode that I'm in, which is the final episode. In fact, I believe I might be the final act in the final episode of the Lockdown Comedy Festival, but Zoe's spot is incredible. So just worth watching for her spot alone to see what she did with her time and her cameras in a situation where a lot of people like me were struggling <laughs> to know how we would present our work through that medium. She not only presented it, but she elevated it. So I am an unreserved, huge fan of Zoe's, which you will get to hear about during this chat that I had with her. So I recommend go to zoekunzmar.com, check out all her links. If she's performing live near you, go and support her live stuff. But in the meantime, watch Bossy Bottom uh, and get around her Australian Lockdown Comedy Special. If you like this show, I have a Patreon page. It's called patreon.com slash philosophy. All this year, uh, we've been trying to get to $5,000 a month. $5,000 a month was the budget that Podcast Mike and I did that we could get two episodes out a week. So the idea would be that we put a brand new episode out early in the week and then a catch-up episode with a previous guest later in the week. Jeez, we've got close. In fact, there was one brief moment where we popped over the 5,000, but we're back to about 4,800 at the moment. So it looks like we probably won't get over 5,000 this year. So I don't know if there's going to be any more two-episode weeks this year. Look, who knows? I might feel generous around Christmas and just put up a couple anyway. But Otherwise, we are still on a quest, and it's, I guess it's going to be a 2021 quest to get to two episodes per week. That would be my ideal way to do this show, because I love doing the original episodes, but I also like to counterbalance them with the catch-up episodes. I think it added something uh, really unique to the show this year to be able to check back in with people that I talk to on these shows, and often the second chat is even more powerful than the first. So I would love to be able to do that, but to be able to do that, we really need to be at that $5,000 per month on Patreon to afford the editing, the time, James Fosdyke's original artwork, all the things that go into making this show. 
5,000 is the mark just to be able to afford to do it. It's not the mark to make any money out of it. It literally is just to be able to afford to do it. So if you like this show and you have the capacity to subscribe, you can do that for as little as $1 per month uh, US and you just go to patreon.com slash philosophy and sign up there. Um, I have a bunch of other podcasts. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by listening and sharing tofop.com is our website and it's a great website i highly recommend you go and check out all james fosdyke's original art for my other podcast tofop which i've been doing with my friend charlie clausen who you occasionally hear doing ads on this uh, podcast charlie and i have had a show called tofop for over 10 years now and uh, this year has been my favorite year of us doing that show and james fosdyke's original artwork has been never been better than it has been this year you can find um fop which is my podcast uh, that is back Regularly now, weekly, uh, there is a new Dave Anthony episode up. And by the time you hear this, I think uh, maybe a Justin Hamilton episode will be up this week coming. And uh, Two Guys, One Cup, which is our AFL adjacent podcast. Charlie and I haven't done an end of season episode yet, just because my schedule has been incredibly busy. But we are going to find time to do that before Christmas. In the meantime, Charlie is putting out episodes with uh, faux fop style with uh, celebrity guests asking them about how they got into their football team and their football club. So if you want to check those out, that is Two Guys, One Cup and AFL Podcast. So that's all the plugs. I hope that everything is going well for you and you are keeping safe. Uh, Thank you very much for listening to this show. And I really hope that you enjoy this episode with Zoe Coombs Martin. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So hello guest, who are you? Hi, I'm Zoe Coombs-Ma, current Philosophy podcast guest. <laughs> I mean, that is somebody who is very much living in the now. I'm here. That's very pre- it's very present of you. I very am. mindful. <laughs> you know, let's not think about who you were in the past or who you're going to be in the future. Let's just concentrate on who you are right now. Mm-hmm. So, okay, well, let's, you know, actually, you know, why not? Fuck it. Let's explore that idea. It's been a long day. I like that <laughs> idea. Let's start there. Um, are you a person who is particularly present in the moment? Are you a person who is good at being lost and immersed in what you're currently doing or do you always live with a sense of past and future in your actions? Um, I think I I would say probably I swing wildly between the two and um, am defined by the tension between those things, I suppose. So I think like I procrastinate a lot, but as soon as I start doing something, I'm like absolutely hyper-focused on it. I find it like I think about it as like like I you grew up in the country as well right I um Mm -hmm. I feel like it was I always think about it as like I had a a horse a pony um when I was growing up a real shabby Welsh mountain pony that sort of ran like a dog but I would never ever want to like saddle her up and get on her um that would and so I wouldn't yeah I would often get in trouble because I wouldn't ride her but once I was on I would never want to get off the horse so I neither want to get on or off the horse it depends on where I am so yeah I guess that's present it really is we have a couple of horses now I'm back living in the country I have returned to the country beautiful and we have a couple of horses in the paddock down 
below from where I am. And they're not our horses. We are adjusting. You have stolen the horses. Yeah, no, I'm a bush ranger now. I've stolen a couple of horses. I'm wearing mostly as a protective mask a Ned, Ned Kelly style helmet, and I've gone <laughs> bush ranger. No, we are, just, we, are just, we are looking after a couple of horses because we have an empty paddock, and some friends had some horses that needed an empty paddock to mm-hmm. be able to eat grass and some friends. shit in all day. So that is what we have. But the horses, of course, are not our horses, so we did not name the horses. And I would love your take on this. Oh. One of our horses has a politically incorrect name. Oh, no. And we are very conflicted by it. Is it like a black horse that's called like Snoop Dogg or something? Oh, Zoe, you are so close yeah. to the truth. It's like Tupac. It is a black, and... It's a black horse and it's called Sambo. Oh, and... no! <laughs> oh, that's even worse! Oh, no. It's like I know someone who like knew someone who had like two poodles, like a black poodle and a white poodle and they were called Oprah and Ellen and I was like, that's oh. bad, but like... Sambo, no, you can't. It's that's it's Sam. We've been going with Sam or Sandwich. We, sandwich. We, we thought that two syllables was still important for Sambo, so we've been going with Sandwich. Look, but. Sandwich isn't going to know the difference, but anyone who overhears you will know that's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. But that's the thing about horses; you rarely name your own horse. They they right. come with names, don't they? Because it's like you're not you're not picking up a horse from the pound or whatever. They tend to be like. They come with their names. Although I guess you are, if you, by that logic, yeah, they come with names as well. But yeah, my horse's name was um, my my horse's name was Bambi, which I would never have named her. She died on the same day as um, Princess Di, though. So I suppose that was quite like you know she was a very very femme type of pony. And we had another horse called Trixie. So it was like our horses were sort of out of work strippers. <laughs> <laughs> Bambi and Trixie. Bambi and Trixie. I mean, they, they weren't their real names, obviously. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, they have to keep their real names private, obviously. Yeah, you exactly. Know, they, don't, they don't want weird jockeys following them home from the track. Exactly. Yeah. You never hear a stripper's real name. Yeah. Uh, country is a good place for us to talk about because I, yes, I did grow up in the country, but I grew up in the country never really feeling like I fit in entirely in the country and was desperate to get away from the country. And now uh, in my middle age, I have returned to the country and I could not be loving it more. I I realized that so many of the things that I thought I hated about the country, I actually absolutely loved. And I was just telling myself that I hated about the country. So tell me a bit about your where you grew up, what your experience of growing up in the country was like. Well, the country, I mean, I think I feel, I live in the city now, but the country is, um, I feel like I've had a very similar experience of like, as I've gotten older, I, I realized that I, the country is fantastic. Like I love it. It's just, you know, it's outdoors. One thing I really miss about being like being in the city is that you can't, you don't have any agency over the space that you're in. Like you can't dig a hole. Not that you, <laughs> most of the time you don't need or want to dig a hole, but I just like the idea that if I wanted to dig a hole, I could dig a hole, but I, you can't do that in the city. Someone will say, Stop that. But (laughs) (laughs) um, if you wear high-vis, I guess you could get away with it for a little bit longer. But eventually someone would cotton on. And you got to, yeah, there's no, you know, excuses or 
outerwear required in the country. But I grew up in um, I grew up in Grafton, so I, my family I'm sort of like I'm pretty country, but my family is sort of faux country. They're like city interlopers. So my parents are both from Sydney. I was born in Sydney, but as a baby we moved up there, and um, so I lived on a farm. I lived on a beef farm, but it was like a hobby beef farm. If that I mean, it's a weird bit like. As a weird hobby, but, um, you know, sort of raising animals to kill and eat them. But that was what it was. Uh, so I, yeah, but I loved it. I really loved, like, I loved being outdoors and the animals and the, you know, the, the space. And when I was a teenager, I discovered that magic mushrooms grew in our paddock. So that was pretty exciting as well. And um, actually, that was a little, I was probably in my early 20s when I discovered that. Uh, yeah, well, that that's something that I'm because of course magic mushrooms rely on, like, well, not rely on, but can be encouraged by animal shit, and yeah. so part of the enticement of getting some horses in our bottom paddock was that I thought eventually they might like Walter White it up and start growing something magically down yeah. in the I bottom think paddock. It's yeah, horses as well, but cows really, cows. Yeah. yeah, get it, get yourself a cow, get a dairy cow just to wander around, find some spores. Great we have the, the the man next to us uh, has um, he's a he's a beef uh, not a hobby beef farm but an actual uh, beef farm. So there yeah. are cattle in the nearby paddock, and at night when the calves are separated from the the cattle, which is part of you know how that world works, the calves are separated and then sold off, and that's how they they don't make like their it. Living and they don't like it. No. And I've had to do a lot of googling trying to convince my girlfriend that uh, no, those cries, those anguished cries that the cows are making in the middle of the night are about anything other than being separated They're just from their weaning. children. But it's... Yeah. It's fine. They're weaning. They don't... I guess our, our cows didn't know they were hobby cows either. So right. I don't... I don't know... If, <laughs> I th- it's, think it's, <laughs> it works in the same way. I don't know if they would be insulted. You'd be like, all this... For a, uh, for it's the same to the cow. For a hobby, it's not even professional. You're not even professionally killing me. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so what was your childhood like? What's your family structure? Um, I come pretty, pretty trad. My parents are still together. They're very cute. They've sort of done that thing where they, they turned into each other a long time ago. Uh, so Peter and Linda are pretty adorable. Um, but I have a very good relationship with my family. My sisters, I have two younger sisters. Um, they all live up up there now so I'm I we grew up in Grafton and then or just outside of and then now um my parents live in Woogooga in Whoopi and my two both my sisters have separately moved there just and one lives around one corner from mum and dad and the other one lives around the other corner I had to sit my mum down and be like mum just so you know no chance in hell are we moving to Woogooga I'm sorry Well, you never know. They might like start the Woolgooga Comedy Festival. It might become the entertainment and arts, arts hub of Australia. You never know. It could be. Yeah, really, it really could be. And then uh, even still then, I'm not moving around the corner from my parents. Although that said, with everything happening with the pandemic, we've sort of, my partner and I are kind of talking about moving up and living in mum and dad's shed for a couple of months. So so I've gone back on my word there. So, okay, so I, I want to explore the country thing a little bit more because I am interested. There is a lot of 
you know, comedians who come from the country. And, and then obviously comedy tends to be a very city-focused career. So you tend to spend a lot of your time then in cities. But do you think there are different ways that you look at life and approach life being raised in the country versus your friends who have lived all their lives in the cities? Yeah, I think there are a few things. Like, I think that, like that relationship to space is one, but also being like, like I never fit in, you know, I'm like a weird person anyway and a queer woman and I was interested in like performing and all that sort of stuff. So I was never, I never fit in. But I think the thing of like, in the country because there's so few people you actually just have to be around there's only so many people so it's just sort of like you can't find your people in the country there might be one other person who you're like we've read the same book and then that's it (laughs) so so I think (laughs) or we've read a book that's enough we're now friends yeah Exactly. And you're like, oh, my God, we got so much in common. That's, so I think for me, it's like I feel like when you live in the country, you do get used to being around people who aren't like you in a way uh, to, to a certain degree and just being, you know, being uncomfortable a lot. I feel like for me socially, I think if you're a misfit and especially for like gay kids and stuff. And I think it's also it's a very um, the experience of being somewhere that you don't want to be as well and then being able to move to a city is like mind-blowing, amazing. I remember the first year that I moved to Sydney, I was just walking around with an enormous smile on my face the whole time, just like, <laughs> I'm not even in Grafton. This is wild. <laughs> so what took you to Sydney? Were you one of those people who immediately finished high school and wanted to get out of there? Like, how did you find your way to Sydney? I moved out straight away. Like, I moved out, like, as soon as I possibly could, as soon as I finished school. Um, and I moved straight to Erskineville and was, like, at the Imperial <laughs> Hotel every single night watching drag shows. Um, I wanted to, yeah, I, I was, like, get me out of here here as soon as possible and my parents were really good and supported me in that and it was obvious that I was gonna go to Sydney it was always gonna happen and I wanted to perform you know and there was not I don't know if you know this Will but the uh open mic comedy scene in uh, Grafton is uh not great <laughs> there's not a lot going on it's there. funny though I imagine these days there may even be there one, probably right? is because I was I was in Lismore the other day you know which is a Grafton oh yeah style, it's Grafton you know, adjacent city. yeah Exactly. And I noticed as I was walking through town um, that there was a a local comedy night and it was very much your local Lismore comedians. It wasn't anybody that I recognised. It would have been a whole bunch of like open micers who obviously, you know, play this room around Lismore. And I was like, well, there's at least eight Lismore <laughs> open micers, which is actually a pretty vibrant open mic Oh, yeah. Mic scene. It's, that's pretty uh, – that's kind of what the open mic scene was in Sydney when I first got there, it feels like. Um, oh, yeah. There was – I'm sure – I mean, Lismore's different, though, because Lismore has a university. So Lismore and Gra- – right. it's quite different. But there probably is, like, an open mic night in Grafton now. I wouldn't be surprised. But at the time, there wasn't. And I, um, I went to Sydney and uh, kind of – So what sort of performing did you want to do? What was the – I mean, because 
I can imagine, as you said, like, and, and I'm sure we will get to it, but like being a queer woman living in Grafton and then, you know, going to, you know, queer Mecca in Erskineville, <laughs> you know, you're just like, I've got to travel. I've got to visit. Uh, you know, this is this is where I'm going to feel absolutely 100% at home. I, I get that. That makes sense to me. I, I imagine that, you know, that was probably something that was very aspirational, being a teen growing yeah. up in the country in the same way as I certainly had that aspirational sense of having watched the big gig and these sort of shows and thinking that Melbourne was a place where they had like the comedy festival and there were all these like pubs that you could go to and you could watch, you know, open mic comedy. Was that part of, you know, your vision as well? Or were you looking at doing different type of performing? Did you know what style of performing you wanted to do when you moved to Sydney? Yeah, I think I kind of wanted to, when I first moved to Sydney, I wanted to, I wanted to be an actor, I think, and um, and I wanted. To, fortunately, I worked out quite quickly that I was like a shit actor. Like I wasn't, and it was not for me. I would have been a very bad and b miserable, waiting for the phone to ring, and um, it wasn't for me. And but I had always wanted to do com- like comedy, and that was always what I connected with. I just didn't really see a way into it, and I think coming from where I was, it was sort of like, well, maybe I'll go to like drama drama school and that's what I'll do but I'd always loved comedy and I remember the first times I you know seeing seeing like the Melbourne Comedy Festival gala on TV as like a young teenager and just being like what is that like I want to do that thing and uh and I remember and also I, I don't know if I've told you this I may have but the very first uh live stand-up show that I saw uh, when I was, I must have been about fifteen, and I'd gone on a trip with my mum to Sydney, and it was you and Dave Hughes doing a double bill at the Valhalla, at the Valhalla Cinema Theatre there, and that was the first live comedy that I ever saw, and was just like, this is amazing. This is, and I think it was like a try. I'm sure it wasn't like (laughs) your best show, but it was like, I think it was like a trial, like a double bill trial show for the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And I I imagine that's exactly what it was. It would have been like a go somewhere and run in your new show style operation, I imagine. Yeah. And I was there, I was like, went with my mum. She was like, what do you, we had a Saturday free or something. We were in the city for like a, Mm. a wedding or something, I think. And I went through the newspaper and I just found this thing that was like comedy and was like, Mum, there's like a live comedy show we can just go to. And I always think about that when you like advertise a show, just like in the, that would get advertised in the newspaper. You're like, who the fuck are these people who come? It's like that, that person, like that weird 15 year old from the country. And I actually met you out the front and was, I'm sure you remember, but um, yeah, I was like, oh. What, Hello. Was I nice? You were nice. I, I, I ask with I ask with hesitation. You were. But you were very was nice. I, was I nice? No, imagine if I was like, yeah, no, you like pushed me over. <laughs> oh, don't worry. It'd, be, it'd make for great podcast content. <laughs> yeah, this could be the new Andy Lee episode. We could come on. We could resolve some past injustices and grudges. Yeah. No, it was. Be very you were very friendly and just. I I'm, I can't remember what our interaction was other than I was like, oh, no. hello. Um, you know. What great show or whatever. 
that'll do. I'll take that. That's yeah. fine. I'm happy to move yeah. on with that as being the memory. So, um, so then when when do you actually start doing comedy? Then you're living in Sydney, obviously. You're starting to see, you know, drag shows and other styles of entertainment. Are you going out to see comedy shows as well? Um, a little bit. Uh, the the scene was pretty small and pretty dire in Sydney at the time. Like there wasn't really much going on. So I was at uni and I did. Um, I was doing an arts degree at uni and I, I was was kind of doing comedy through like in uni contexts in a in a way. And I think I I remember I did an open mic night, the first proper comedy thing I did, I would have been probably nineteen, I suppose. And I did a um I did an open mic comedy night and the guy before me, and I talk about this in my show, I talked about this in my last show, which is that the the guy before me opened with a pedophile joke and <laughs> then like just like absolutely bombed and he was, and I, I say this in my show as well, but he'd cast himself as the pedophile in his own joke. So it was this whole like terrible thing and then uh, but that was pretty much that sent the bar for like the kind of scene that I was entering into and I was sort of like I don't know how to exist in this world so I didn't really have a very soft landing into it and at the same time I'd sort of found like more like artsy experimental theatre world and found a bit more of a niche in that so I sort of used that as a platform to kind of make the comedy and the the stuff that I wanted to make that didn't really fit into what was a very blokey, very kind of kind of hostile environment that I didn't really know how to position myself in um, until many years later. And then um, I kind of, I kind of came at it sideways once I worked out who I was a bit more. And so that's interesting to me. So let's fast forward uh, through time just for a second and then we'll go straight back to this, but I want to contextualize something. So I've said this to you, so I'm, you know, not embarrassing you. I'm now saying it to the audience, (laughs) but uh, your last show that you shot for um, uh, Amazon, Amazon Prime, people can see it, which was called Bossy Bottom, right? Mm -hmm. Is that the show? Yeah, it's called Bossy Bottom. It is, I mean, still probably my favourite comedy show I've seen in the last five years. Stop like, it! it is, I, th- I think about that show so often. I, rem- I saw five really fantastic shows that week all being filmed for the specials. They were all brilliant. But yours was the only one that if you were doing a second showing that night for the recording, I would have come back and watched it again, you know, just to see how some of the magic was done. I just found it incredible and part of what i found so incredible about it was that it really felt to me like it combined both traditional stand-up but also a whole bunch of those other elements that you've just suggested so i i say that now so that we can then go back in time like i've seen what it became but how did it become what it became so you're starting out you're in this scene that feels you know not particularly welcoming and it you know it turns out uh guys that comedy hasn't always had the best reputation for being inclusive uh to a whole bunch of different people and it's probably something that we need to do a better job of rectifying on every fucking level but uh you've lived through that and kind of come out the other end, you know, in you know, as this sort of glorious, unique performer in your own right. So tell me a little bit about, you know, you starting out in this hostile scene and getting these other influences, how it became what you are now. Um, well, firstly, thank you for all those compliments. I'm feel very flattered. Uh, it's a great show. Thank you. Um, 
secondly, I guess, yeah, it was, I, I don't know. I kind of stumbled through it the whole way. Like, and I find that I think that I still am stumbling through it. Uh, for me, it was always led by, I'm just obsessed with the audience and I love, mm-hmm. I love the immediacy of comedy and I love the accessibility of it and that you're right there with the audience. So that was always what I was, uh, was driven by, I think just instinctually. Um, and I was, I was really just trying to find places where I could get on stage and do that. So I started off, I wanted to be, I wanted to do acting because that was sort of the only like career path that I kind of knew of because I think even then like being a comedian there wasn't as much of a clear ladder of the way that you would like become a comedian and also like this was before YouTube and stuff like that so it wasn't even learning how to do it wasn't as clear so I started off doing like comedy at uni doing like improv and like you know that daggy kind of like extracurricular stuff and then I did this I auditioned in the first year that I was out which was my gap year I suppose when I was 18 I auditioned for a what I thought was an acting course but it turned out was a contemporary performance course which is Mm. different and (laughs) (laughs) it involved it went for nine months and it took Uh no it went no it went for a year and it took probably I would say approximately nine months before I worked out this is not an acting course. <laughs> and I wasn't the only one either. So like my friends, like I made, you know, lifelong friends in that and collaborators, people I still work with now. Um, I remember us going like, why don't they just tell us what to do? <laughs> and we were just like so confused for so long. They would just like make us lie on the floor heaps. And like, we did like so many really slow motion running races. And we were like, just these like, you know, in our late teens and early twenties, just being like, what the fuck are these kooks trying to get us to do? And about nine months in, I just had this lightning bolt moment. And I was like, Oh, I can do whatever I want. Like that was, that was the point of the whole course in a way. It was just like, you're on a stage, as long as you make it make sense in some way, you can actually do whatever you want. And there are no confines to that, really. The only thing that you need to, for me, the only thing that I worked out that I really needed to be aware of is, is the context that you're in and the the expectations that an audience brings into a space. But once you know that you can actually meet it in all these different ways and not, and that's not dictated by what other people have done before. And actually going against that is the most useful thing you can do. So once that happened, then I was like, Oh, everything is an object. Everything's a possibility. So you can be doing comedy, but at the same time, you know, like what are the lights doing or what happens when the person at the door takes your ticket that you can do something with that as well. Um, and so the, the options then became bigger. And so then that was just something, once I realized that, genre and the context I know I sound like a massive wanker now but I'm gonna go with it but once I sort of realized that quite early on that those were all things that I could play with then that sort of opened up uh, it made me a little less afraid of getting it wrong in other contexts and so that allowed me I think to sort of come back into comedy because it was something I was really drawn to but without trying to play the game in the same way that these other mostly men were playing it because 
I couldn't play it in the same way because when I stepped on stage, the air in the room changed because people would be like, oh, it's this woman and a very young woman and she's like you know, got a sideways haircut and is, oh, it's a dyke. Like that was the kind of stuff that I was kind of working with. And then it took me many, many years before I worked out how to use, use that as what I was doing, I guess. I think you have a pretty unique perspective on like, I mean, again, I'm not going to be one of those people. I'm aware of that. The worst thing that you could possibly ask a fucking female comedian (laughs) is what it's like to be a woman in comedy. So please, you know, this is not that question, but I think that you have a unique insight to speak to the male female gender relationship because of course, you know, your first sort of mainstreamy, you know, if you want to call it that breakthrough was with a character you did, uh, yeah, a male character that you were doing on stage, which I imagine, you know, like goes way back to coming to Sydney, watching drag shows. And then suddenly you've incorporated, you know, that aspect of performance into stand up comedy. But also that character was so uniquely observed that you obviously had to do a fair amount of thinking about, you know, what these roles were and how they presented themselves. So uh, without this being what's it like to be a woman in comedy, you know the question that I'm actually answering, (laughs) asking you, which is can you talk to me a little bit about your observations of the the gender roles and disparities in comedy? Yeah, I think, I mean... whilst avoiding going down the, the common paths, um, I think that where that character Dave came from was, you know, like that I did, I, I sort of made Dave in like 2013, right? And I'd been, so I'd already been doing comedy in various guises and kind of like having this love-hate relationship with the scene for uh, like 10 years already. Um, so it sort of came, there was like a lot of, a lot of observation, like you say, the thing that I found interesting was it was just like, it was, it was much about the audiences as it was about the people. And it was, it just felt like a really ripe time to do a parody because I just sort of, I was like, I started to find it really really frustrating so it came from a quite a dark place of frustration just being like I can't exist in this place but also it came from a place of um I just started finding it really funny I was just like this guy is doing the same routine in the same shirt as that that guy who was on before him it's exactly the same and so then I just was like oh it would be quite haha wouldn't it be funny if I just got up in the same shirt and did the same routine as well. The only difference would be is that I'm not a man. Um, and so then I just sort of started doing that. And and then something kind of clicked. And then obviously it was, I, it was the weirdest thing I'd ever done, but it was also like just weirdly the most relatable because everyone was seeing the same thing that I was. It was just... Um, you know, which is what comedy is as well a lot of the times, just like observing something and going like, look at that. And people go, oh, yeah. I mean, I think the the great, you know, thing that the character achieved, Dave, is that it was at once, I imagine, at least in some rooms, probably when you got to festivals and had your own audiences and stuff, there was the majority of the audience who were, you know, in on the joke. Yeah. But I imagine there would have been some rooms you played early on where the audience were just much more comfortable with you just because you were presenting as the other acts on the bill were presenting. And it didn't really matter that it was a joke. They were just happy that they were seeing like a guy up there telling jokes that they kind of relate 
related to. Completely. Whereas my whole, and that was one of the most shocking things for me doing it is that like my whole experience had been getting up on stage and making people feel quite uncomfortable because they didn't necessarily know how to take me or how to, or whether to trust me or not. I mean, the other thing is when you start out in comedy, you are shit. Like you're shit at comedy in the beginning for like 10 years. So I was, it wasn't like I was like incredible and people weren't, it was like I was also not very good. But then once I was doing Dave, it was like something really shifted and the audience just trusted me. They would like an audience trusts a fake man more than they trust a real woman sometimes in those environments. And um, that was pretty interesting. But then once that started happening and then it was also this combined thing of like it's a character. So there's a certain like amount of freedom that comes with that as well. It just became very fun and there's sort of like it was a real fearlessness with it. And that was, yeah, it was sort of something that kind of clicked and it made sense. And it also happened at a time when, the you know, the world is very different now in relation to like, like it was sexual harassment was totally fine until like a few years ago. And now people are like, nah, nah, it's, you really can't. You can't do it anymore. Like, don't. Like it didn't, it wouldn't affect someone's career at all in like 2004. I mean, you, you could argue in 2020, it's still not taking the entire shine off people's careers, nope. but yep. sure. I understand the point. I understand the point that you're trying to make. Yeah. Um, so, but then, okay. So then this character, you know, like you said, Dave wasn't the only thing that you were, you were doing, but then Dave becomes the most identifiable thing that you're doing comedically, right? And then you, mm. you know, you you travel through that to shedding Dave. So w w when does that moment come along where you're like, I've been in this world for a while, but now I want to move out of Dave's world? Uh, well, it sort of hit at the point at which it was the most... Uh, <laughs> almost illogical thing to do, I guess, for me. It was when it became comfortable and it was like, you know, I'd, I'd done – I'd only ever planned to do one Dave show and I did that and it was just called Dave and then I did – I wasn't going to do another one and then someone was like, oh, would you do a Dave thing? And I was like, nah, he would have been cancelled by now He would have, and he would have had to become a clown. And so then I was like, oh, no, that's actually funny. So I did a second one. <laughs> <laughs> just the idea of him having, like, being disgraced so badly that he needed to become a mime was just too funny. So I did that, but then I really didn't feel like I had another Dave show in me and I didn't think that um, I, I had kind of created Dave out of frustration of not having a voice and Dave had kind of given me that space and so I felt like it would have... Dave is a hack as well. Like that's the point. It's like a parody of a hack comedian who's just doing the same stuff and so it felt like it would have been a really sort of hacky thing for me to just keep doing that character and it would have probably been more commercially wise for me to keep doing the character but it felt like a far scarier thing to um to to be myself then and so that was I felt like I had to do it otherwise I would have been a bit of a sellout so that's yeah that's and it was scary it was very weird as well then having to relearn stand up in the persona of myself after having done Dave for, I think I did Dave for about seven years. So 
and exclusively. So that's interesting. Talk to me a little bit about that because I, I absolutely agree that that must have been hard because there's just so much muscle memory in doing things a certain way. And then you're like, well, that's no, that's a parody of a hack comedian. So I can't just like you know, shave off the beard, so to speak, yeah. and then suddenly, you know, just be me, but doing my comedy in the exact same rhythms and styles. Yeah, so it's been a weird process. It's like, like you say, exactly, that's the thing. It's like it's a parody of a hack comedian. So then you're on stage and now I'm just a much hackier comedian than I have <laughs> been before. I do a lot more leaning on the microphone stand. I do sing. I created a vocal tick for Dave, which has just, now just stayed as muscle memory and I, I try to get rid of it but it's that thing where you will say a punchline and then immediately go um afterwards just to like cover <laughs> over any silence that might happen that's 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 the first 12 years of my career you probably picked that up at a, at a cinema in Sydney when you were 15 I reckon yeah so I that uh, I do that I do a lot of um I I did when I was, I'm, it's I'm better at it. I had to sort of work out what was Dave and what was me as Dave and what would stay. So a lot of the the Daveness is still there in me, um, but it's, he's, I'm infected forever with Dave. But uh, when I was first doing it, the crossover was really weird because it's like the muscle memory, which is very odd, but also the the, the kind of neural pathways where I would just say something like really sexist. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, fucking bitches. And then <laughs> and people and be like, because I'm not wearing a costume anymore, people would just be like, what? <laughs> be like, no, sorry, that's oh, that wasn't me. I wasn't I was possessed. <laughs> it's really odd. I used to be I used to be a terrible man. Yeah, I'm, I'm coming. Sorry. I've been through something. <laughs> Uh, you talk about the idea of audience and audience expectations and how everything can be a show. And I think this was one of the things that I was most impressed uh, when I watched Bossy Bottom being recorded. And you told me later, uh, you know, not to spoil anything, that many of the things that I had been convinced had been constructed purely for that night's entertainment were actually things that were originally in the show that you had just adapted for the recording. But the audience doesn't need to know that. And I didn't no. know that. And I watched the show just imagining that so much of what you were doing that night had been created for the recording of that television show because you were, you know, you were playing with the the media itself and the room itself and the construction of a show itself. And I found all these things incredibly compelling. So it's quite a big, ambitious show or at least when I saw it it was a big ambitious show did it start as that sort of ambitious and amb I can't say ambitious it turns out ambitious <laughs> it's show? a hard word um it did not uh, yeah sort of not um my producers kind of hated me by the end of it uh so Rowan and Kathleen who were uh our producers at Token. Um, when I was, I you know finished doing Dave, and I was like, the next show is just a simple stand-up show. 
it's just going to be stand up. That's all. It's just going to be talking. It's a no tech. It's just a simple. And then it became a joke because within the first week, I was like, oh, can we get a drone? And then. Because <laughs> I just, once I sort of, and I was doing a lot of stand up. Like, that's what I was sort of working on. I was like, it has to be. Because I had a lot to prove as well. I just spent the last seven years going, like, oh, fucking stand ups. <laughs> like, and parodying it. So me coming back as myself was quite scary. So the stand-up had to work, but once I'd sort of worked out what that was, basically, I was I I kind of as soon as I thought of something, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if a drone just flew in now? And then as soon as I think that, I'm like, ah, ah I have to do that now. That's I what can't I have to just do. Have a, I can't just have a show where it's just a drone, though. I'm no. gonna, oh, I'm gonna, no, I'm gonna have this. <laughs> And then it became about, you know, it really did become about, that show is very much about being present, actually, in the moment with the audience. And so it's like, well, what are they thinking? Like, what's going to surprise them the most? And and that's the stuff that I just really, so it's, it didn't really start as like, it's going to be this epic, ambitious thing. It just sort of started as the next logical step in the creative process of making and it was just like and then what and then what and it became very much about I think that comedian experience which is very much sort of very kind of you know myth of Sisyphus kind of pushing the same rock up the same hill every night but it's very lonely and you're I was trying to find a way to bring the audience into what the experience is of being the comedian like that the doing the same thing every night and so then it became more led by that idea i suppose it's interesting to me because you talk about the idea of cultivating an audience that you know know a little bit more about what they've signed up for when they walk through the door and i think what was so impressive about the show is that you probably have an audience who understand that their expectations are going to be subverted but you still manage them to surprise them by how you subvert their expectations. And I think (laughs) that's a beautiful thing. Like the audience walking going, yeah, we're we're up for the idea that at some stage she's going to fuck with us. We just don't know how she's going to fuck with us. Yeah, that becomes the tricky thing. I've kind of created a house of cards of my own tricks. Um, And yeah, the more that an audience is on board, the more I've kind of kicked out my own table legs i was gonna say the one thing you now can't do is just a straight stand-up show because people are just going to be sitting there the whole time going wait for it i bet this well any minute now wait seriously mate i know it's been 55 minutes but there is drones coming i guarantee it mate wait for it <laughs> that's it's so spot on because my my show like this my covid year show uh basically that I I was about to do in Melbourne um, sort of is mostly just a simple stand-up show but the, they, you're right that most of the audience are like ah, 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 and then it's but it is actually quite a simple show so it's sort of a challenge to try to do things in that way. But, okay, so yeah. talk to me about COVID and audiences because you've mentioned uh, audiences a bit and the idea of the relationship between the performer and the audience and then obviously we've just lived through a period of time where, you know, comedy still exists but, you know, the audiences from the, for that comedy, they are still there but they are not there in the room with you at the moment. So what has that been like? Um, I think it's been... Fucked. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, oh, okay. it's just fucked. Um, it's been, I don't know, it's been an interesting time for me personally 
it's just been about accepting that loss, I think, and that disconnection from an audience in a way that it's like, there are other things that I do that satisfy me and, you know, creatively and writing and doing, making things and, you know, done a couple of like little screen things and doing stuff like this. And, you know, there's, there's other things, but the, the experience of being in a space with an audience is not, you can't replicate it in any other way. And that's what makes it special. Um, and that's, it's just about, you know, waiting I suppose like I don't want to kind of try to pretend that you can do that without it and but it doesn't have to be a big audience it just needs to be an an audience you know so it's yeah it's interesting um it's just not it's not there without an audience you can't pretend and that's why stand-up always has an audience you know why it's like so dire if you try <laughs> <laughs> do something you can't you still be funny but it's not the same thing uh i ask people on this show if they have a philosophy a life philosophy of any kind and you know that i was going to ask you this question so uh yeah. what is your answer to that question oh i don't know i look i have obviously yeah i i did know you were going to ask this and i've i've been thinking about it and i don't think that i have any kind of one overarching life philosophy but I do have like I've got a few sort of things that I come back to when I was thinking about what I was gonna say I was like I guess one thing that I come to a lot and is something that I have learned and have to continue reminding myself is that discomfort is not pain and learning to tell the difference between the two of those things is like learn the difference um that's really that's, good. I like that a lot. That's that's cool. Yeah, okay. Discomfort is not pain because yeah, it, obviously pain warning system that something terrible is happening, but discomfort is something different to that. One of the things I say a lot yeah. about stand-up is that people don't go into stand-up despite it being hard. People go into stand-up because secretly they know that it's hard and they want to try to master something that's hard. And that will involve mm. a lot of discomfort sometimes some pain also but yes what you've really got to do is like yeah learn that i mean yeah the, the simple thing of doing badly in comedy there is a difference between the discomfort of doing badly and actual pain which would stop you from doing it again yeah and i think so for me it took me a while to get to that because at first i was going to say i was like i don't know what is it what is that thing that i think is it like your feelings don't matter no i was like that, <laughs> that's like makes me sound like a psychopath um a, a i was little. just imagining like an illustrated like panel of my head and then it's like zoe kumsma your feelings don't matter oh, um, don't worry you've said it out loud that's still gonna happen <laughs> don't worry about that <laughs> please um uh but i think that that thing of like it's something that informs not just like the way that i it's definitely something to do with comedy um you know and learning to actually like i actually love i love watching people bomb that's like one of the greatest things of all time um but when it's someone who you know can handle it watching like an open mic a bomb that's just painful but watching like someone who like is a master and is bombing is just delightful because it's just about sitting in this discomfort. And I really enjoy discomfort, like, like uncomfortable strangeness on stage, but it's also informs like, you know, I, it informs the way that 
I live my life as well. I think sometimes when you feel really uncomfortable with something, it it might it's it's not always a bad thing. It might just mean it's a period of change or it's something that you need to push through or you need to work on or think about. And I think it's also informs my politics. I think that like one huge issue you know when is that people feel that when when something makes people feel uncomfortable, they get that really confused with something being like an attack or oppression. And they can't, if you can't tell the difference between, oh, actually, I just feel uncomfortable, then you'll never be able to actually have the conversations that need to be had and actually move forward. You know, you see it a lot with like people are so, with, you know, in terms of like conversations about race, it's like white people, we are so uncomfortable with the idea of someone potentially calling us racist that we don't, or, or saying the wrong thing, that it's like we don't do the things that we should and have the uncomfortable conversations that we should. And it's like, when you feel uncomfortable, it just doesn't matter. It's just not in the general scheme of things. It's not, but it feels really big. I think people, when they feel discomfort, it feels big. So give me an example, because I, I, I think you're so right. I think so much of what you've just said, then I... And when I say you're so right, what I mean is I agree with you. That's what I've, that's what I've realized about myself. When I'm on this show and I say to somebody, I think that's so right, what I'm really saying is you agree with me and I agree with you. Therefore, that is a very smart answer to that question. But give me an example of how, um, you, you know, so race was the first one that came to your mind. Do you think that is the area where we do have the most discomfort? I think, well, not all people, but yeah, like people like us will, white people. Um, we do feel, I think that there's, it's not the major issue. Is discomfort. In fact, I think it is the least important issue is white people's discomfort around mm. conversations with race. Your feelings I, don't matter is what you're saying. Your right? feelings don't matter. Zoe uh, <laughs> <laughs> Kuzma, 2020. Um, it's <laughs> it's going to be on my campaign bus. Uh, <laughs> I just, you'd, win, you'd win a lot of votes. That's the problem. Yeah, completely. I just think it is one of the things that really gets in the way of any kind of meaningful conversation or, or any actual action. It's like where action needs to take place and there are real injustices happening. We need to be able to see the difference between someone's real pain and oppression and, the, you know, disadvantage and injustice and a feeling of discomfort. And I think that we elevate our own discomfort above real issues. And it's like it doesn't grow up. It doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter how uncomfortable you feel. So I think that it, it can be something that you know in being a good person in the world we need to pay less heed to you know how things make us feel sometimes but also in terms of like moving forward in our lives is like personal gain i to bring this back to the country i always think about mustering cattle right not all the time. I mean, I think about other things. No, constantly. 95% constantly. of the time I think about mustard yeah, like, But I managed to produce boy. the other 5%. <laughs> constantly just, it's just like Homer Simpson, like just the constant loop R- Rowan, of Rowan, I'm going to need 800 cows. Can you fit them in a tent in the gardens in Adelaide? And they must be Angus beef cattle. <laughs> With tail tags, yellow tail tags. Um, so <laughs> I, I think mustering cattle, there's this thing that cows do 
where if you're moving them from one paddock to another, as you often have to do, you know, generally because there's something that they want or need in the other paddock, like it's a better paddock, they freak out so much at the gate. Like they just don't want to go in. And I always remember as a kid just being like, it's stupid cows. They, like, but they can't see past the gate. And I think that's the thing. Like people are very similar. <laughs> we're just like terrified of the gate and we're like milling around, mooing and screaming about the gate. But it's like the on the other side is a whole new paddock that you want to be in. So just push through the gate because it's, it's not real. Your discomfort with it is, is irrelevant and it's holding you back. Okay, so we've clearly been in a really uncomfortable time for a lot of people. You know, the global circumstance has put so many people, and I think probably, you know, the majority of people, no matter what your life circumstance, you know, people have experienced varying different levels of discomfort but you know discomfort has been something that has come the way of so many different people even if they've found new ways to operate they've had to find new ways to operate so we have an opportunity the house has been knocked down and there's people lobbying to it for us to rebuild the house exactly how it was before we knocked it down and then there are those people who are thinking well maybe when we rebuild it we should you know get rid of the asbestos and put in some solar panels you know we have an opportunity perhaps to you know do some work on how our civilization was organized and how a society worked is there anything from the current circumstances world circumstances that you would love to you know take back into as we rebuild our world oh i don't know i'm an absurdist comedian not a bloody politician um <laughs> I think <laughs> more drones, more drones. <laughs> I mean, I, I, think I, don't, I don't expect you to have the like. You know, I'm not relying on you to have all the the answers. Well, thank God. I, w- I I would just like your answer. Like, what 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 would you like to see different as we you know rebuild coming out of this time? Well, I think that uh, what I would like to see is I think so many people have been pushed onto welfare and have, you know, capitalism is not working very well for the majority of us. And I would love to see, you know, a, a, a reworking of that and more empathy and actual support for people who need it. Uh, you know, I think that wealth distribution is one of the major sort of <laughs> issues uh, going. And, you know, and then off that comes things like the environment, et cetera. But I think the major thing that is like that I would love to see changed is is that. Um, because people like, like, I'm fine. I'm not. It's not like, but I, I just think that it's, yeah, I mean, everything's very unequal and very imbalanced. I'm not being very articulate about this, but I think that it's like, if you look at it, it's like no one should have a hundred billion dollars. Like no one, no one should have a billion dollars. That's too many dollars. Like you wouldn't, you know, if you dropped, if you dropped half of them, you wouldn't even notice. So it's like, I just, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's, that would be the starting point. And I think that's the thing that's not changing. Um, and I don't think that anything will change unless that does. No, unfortunately, that seems like a thing that has been reinforced by the times that we've gone through. You know, the major yeah. tech companies and the billionaires in the tech industry, their hold has only been reinforced by the circumstances that we've been in. And obviously, Jeff Bezos, you know, a guy who deserves to get paid so much more money than everybody else because he invented a shop. He came up with the idea of a place where you could buy stuff, but online. So give him all the money in the entire world. But again, his power is 
has only been reinforced by the circumstances the world has been going through. So uh, I, I think that you are, again, I think you are absolutely correct. But I also sadly think you're correct in that that is not being redistributed uh, very quickly. Okay, what about artists? Artists and art. This has been a challenging time for people working in the arts because obviously a lot of our income has gone away but I also think it's been a challenging time in the discussions around the value we place on arts in our society how do you feel about the, the current role of the arts in the world that we live in the thing I mean I think it's a pretty dire time I think it's pretty distressing just in terms of the money that's being taken from things like you know like arts funding for instance the thing that I find really difficult is that you know when we look at arts education and art you know the amount of money that's taken from like the universities and from arts funding and from arts organizations and things is that people when you try to talk about it it's seen as like a very elitist type of thing it's just like oh the arts like it's a very bougie kind of first world problems fancy people thing my issue with it is that it's it's, it's not that, and it shouldn't be that. And actually the current policies and the current conversation that is taking away like public funding from the art, it, from the arts is taking it away from like working class people, people from the country, young people. And so it's making it more and more and more elitist. And so it's kind of this weird paradox where if you talk about something, you're seen as being this like bourgeoisie kind of, you know, <laughs> private school bum liquor, but it, it's actually like what is happening is that it is becoming more elite and it's taking away something that is, I know for me and I'm sure probably for you and for lots of people is like an absolute lifeline, you know, the arts. It's not just, it's all, firstly, I don't want to live in a world where only private school kids get to actually say anything about anything, but I, you know, I, it, it's an, it's a, it's a lifeline, especially for people like, like queer kids from the country. I would be, I don't know what I would be if I didn't have an avenue of, like making work and doing what I do now. I mean, I don't know what I would have been. Like, I don't know what I would have done with my life. I don't, I I certainly, if I was a kid from Anderson's Road in Denison, you know, 250 people, there's no way that as many people would listen to what I have to say if it hadn't been for the arts. Now, sometimes they probably shouldn't. Like, (laughs) but, you know, I have no other way to earn a living, guys. So thanks for tuning in. Patreon.com slash philosophy. But (laughs) it is... I, I think it's been such a weird time because we've never been consuming more art. Like people are in lockdown. They are in these yeah. situations where they are. Yeah, I've, I've finished all the streaming services. I need them to invent a new streaming service so that I can have something else to fucking watch. The other day we watched seven series of old Gogglebox episodes in a row. <laughs> seven series. <laughs> Why didn't you just put a mirror next to the television? <laughs> I mean, like, it's incredible to to me that the arts have been so incredibly devalued. And it's actually yeah. been... I mean, there are so many people who have shown their support to the arts during this time. And I joke about the Patreon subscribers, but I've had so many people messaging me on my Patreon page going, I was going to buy a ticket to your show, but instead I'm contributing it here because I know this is, you know, how you earn a living. And that understanding of that relationship has been incredible. But there are just as many people who do not give one shit that our entire industry just went away overnight. They're just like, well, you know, 
probably should have got a sensible job when you left school. This was this was always coming, and you know, and no, nothing. To, the fact that we were all doing fucking bushfire benefits all fucking January, yeah, and then I by know. April, like there was a bit of me that was like, when are the fucking bushfire victims going to do something for us? Where's our benefit? <laughs> yeah, when are no. they going to get together? <laughs> and it, I think that that sort of yeah, that devaluing is so frustrating because there's the, the one side of it which is like the commerce of it where it's like you know you do shows and people pay for them and there's an understanding there with an audience but there's also I really worry about a lot of yeah like public funding that's been taken from like youth theatre groups where I would never have gotten to roll around on the floor for nine months and then realise <laughs> that I wasn't doing an acting course I think those sorts of things which is like those things lead to real jobs as well. And the idea that it's like, it's not a real job or whatever it is. Of course it is. It's, you know, it's, it's something that's real that adds value that exists in so many, it's a whole industry. I don't know. It's, it's so frustrating. It's so annoying. So you commerciality is something that's interesting when it comes to art, because not all your work is necessarily, you know, like you're not always making, you know, I love the way you're trying to phrase this. commercial decisions in the way that you present things. No, I mean, you, you touched on it yourself before. The idea that, you know, Dave becomes this thing that people suddenly recognize and admire and want to book. And then you're like, well, Dave's dead now. Sorry, guys. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm doing a thing with drones and Angus cattle now. So yeah. sorry, Dave's, Dave's not here anymore. So how do you balance? that, uh, you know, your instincts for entertainment and art versus your instincts for, you know, this is your job and this is how you earn a living? Yeah, I don't know. It's a tricky one, I think, because until Dave really, like, like I, I didn't really make any money at all um, and I never really planned to. Um, I'd, I think, I don't think I've ever made, like, a commercial decision in my life. Like, I don't think... Like, obviously, I want to make money and be able to live my life. But I also think I I think it would be backwards at this point to start making commercial decisions. And I think it would just bite me in the ass. Like, I have to actually be making something that I care about and that is good, that I think is good, at least, in order for anyone to believe in it enough to buy a ticket or, you know, program it or whatever. So I... For me, the only way that I know to make decisions is about like the, I don't want to say like the integrity, but like the, my belief in the work. I just can't do something that I don't care about. I, it would be crap. When you're imagining high concept, you know, pieces <laughs> of comedy, how do I mean, cause I'm so low concept. Like my, my stuff is like, you know, it is classic old school, you know, stool microphone, like literally this microphone that I'm oh, currently but you using do it very well. on this stand. Um, but that's it. That's like, I mean, that's my shows and that's how I do my shows. And it'd be weird if I did my shows any differently to that. This is, that's, you know, that, that's what I do on stage, but I know how to try that. I know where I can, I can pop down to a local room and I can sort of go, I've got this five minutes I want to talk about, you know, Scott Morrison nearly killed a wiggle. Let's, <laughs> I'll try it out at this room and then I'll work out if I can take it to the comedy theatre. But how do you actually put your shows together? Do you still trial them in that way or is some of it, you know, first night people see it, they're seeing it for the first time? 
It's a combo of things. It's like a weird Frankenstein patchwork, my shows. So I, I always imagine it as like, it's uh, because I, I never really kind of had that comfortable like popping into a room type of thing in when I was kind of coming up that's something that I've come to a little bit later um in terms of trying out material that I do do that I try out material and bits um and then I will then I'll do a lot of trial shows and I will do really really shit versions of the tricks so I'll buy like a ten dollar drone and then crash it into a wall and you just need that one second of like oh that works it didn't work tonight (laughs) but that like there was something there's like one tiny little second that you can like sort of pin a hat on guys is a more expensive drone yeah we're gonna need a big (laughs) sorry everyone forget that ever happened i just want to see what it was like if i threw a drone like don't worry about it forget it in the real show, it's going to be a much better drone, guys. Well, but that's, like, this that's why a lot of my shows are very, like, um, things going wrong. Like, that becomes, like, a real constructed thing because probably in a lot of my trials, things actually do go wrong and then something funny happens from that and then it's, like, it sort of snowballs. Um, but, yeah, try, it's, it is something that I really struggle with because a lot of it you can't really try but i have like inflatables for instance and i didn't want to spend money on i'm giving away all the tricks of my show but i had inf- i used inflatables in a thing who knows what show <laughs> and when i trialed it i got a fan and just tied a garbage bag to it <laughs> and then just turned the fan on at a particular time <laughs> just to get the the timing of it and see what it was like. And then the audience is just looking at a, a fan blowing through a garbage bag that I've, like, drawn a smiley face on. And that's how I try all my stuff. And I have to make a lot of apologies to the audience of being like, I know this isn't yeah. what you came this for. This is, again, this will be good. Yeah, I'm going to get a better drone this and this, these will also be better. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I ask yeah. people on this show what they think happens when we die. What do you think happens when we die? I think nothing. I don't think, like, yeah. I mean, I think I've passed out a few times. I think it's probably mm. a bit like that. You know, when you pass out and sort of time ceases to exist and none, you, you sort of exist. I, I kind of feel like there might be like a vague sense of consciousness, but you're not conscious of your consciousness or something. I don't know. Probably something like that. And you then, don't have yeah. any broader spiritual or religious belief about the nature of our existence. No, not really. I don't think, I mean, I, I don't think it matters. I don't, I don't think it's the sort of thing that you can know. Um, so I, I don't really, I would, I can't believe something that is just totally made up, but I don't know. I mean, if if there were a meaning to our lives, would you want to know? Like if, if it was discovered, you know, there is a God or it was aliens or, you know, whatever the answer is, would you like to know the answer? No. Cause what if it's something dumb? What if it's like mm. the meaning of life is, yeah. you know, like procreation. I'd be like, ah, what? Ah. Like, the- <laughs> 
what I mean? Like if it was like the meaning of life is make sure you always go to church. God loves you. I'd be like, oh, oh damn it. No. <laughs> Shit. Or it was just something boring. Like, you made a lot of bad choices. I yeah. would have rather found out about this much later. Upon Me- my death. That would, <laughs> yeah. at, least I would have, at least I would have had this first. Yeah, if it's like make as much money as you can, I'd be like, ah, oh, <laughs> should have no. kept Dave around. Damn it. Jeff Bezos is the winner. <laughs> He won. <laughs> yeah. Do yeah, you, no, I wouldn't um, want to know. Do you think about death? Yeah, I think about death a lot. I think, I mean, I mentioned like myth of Sisyphus before. I think I, like in terms of like actual overarching philosophies, like I did, I like philosophy a lot and mm. I really like, um, you know, like I really like Camus um, mm-hmm. and not <laughs> sound like a, a real wanker, but I think there's something really beautiful about the idea of like an absurdist kind of view of the world, which is that we are going to die and everything is meaningless. There is no meaning, but that we find meaning in living like defiantly against there being no meaning, you know? And I think that, yeah, And I think that that is always in relation to death. The death, actually, the fact that you die actually gives your life meaning, and um, and that that defines us. And I think that thinking about there's so many reasons why we should just give up, and you know, there's and I I think that that you know that personally, but also just as it, it, when you think about the world, it's like, we're helpless. We're small. There's like no meaning. The stars are so far away. But, um, but the reasons that you don't is sort of what gives life meaning. And it's always in relation to that. If you, if you, if you talk about like the things that you value most in your life, the things that, you know, if we are giving our own life meaning and we decide what is important, then what are the things that give your life real meaning? Um, oh, just cattle, just, just mustering cattle. 95% of the time, cattle. Be- beautiful, cattle being, cattle beautiful being moved cattle. from one place, one place to another place. I do not enjoy stationary cattle. I only enjoy cattle being transported from one paddock to another paddock in some sort of muster. That is what I enjoy. Grass-fed Angus beef going through yellow gates. Ta- yellow tail tagged. Angus beef going through gates. It's all a girl needs to be happy. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, what gives? I mean, look. I think honestly, it is about like things like a connection with an audience and connection. I mean, I think that being given an opportunity to like live a life and do things and connect with people. It's that for me. It's uh, it's just those moments of fully being like present and making people laugh and laughing like that is what gives my life meaning that's how I funnel everything that I experience in the world through and it yeah I don't know when are you at your happiest uh, probably on stage. I never feel better than when I'm on stage. I never feel more comfortable than when I'm on stage. But I also never feel more uncomfortable than when I'm about to go on stage. I never want to go onto the stage. Never want to get on the horse. But once you're on the horse, you never want to get off the horse. Exactly. 
<laughs> Which, yeah. Uh, Don't want to go through that gate. What uh, about love? What uh, role does love play in your life? Is love an important thing? Yeah, I, yes, it is. I suppose I don't really talk about it very much because I, I have a lot of it in my life, I suppose. Um, I have a, yeah, I have a good, a great relationship with a lovely partner who puts up with all my idiocy. Um, and yeah, and I think I grew up in a really loving family and uh, I'm very lucky in that way. And I, yeah. And do you give love easily? Yeah, I think I do. Um, I feel embarrassed talking about love. Um, it's very touchy feely. Uh, <laughs> prefer talking about cattle. But <laughs> I'm from the country, Will. Don't make me talk about my feelings. <laughs> when, when I say the word love, you just think of cattle. And answer cattle. It however yeah, you want love them. Answer it. <laughs> I. No, I think that I do. I'm a, I am a very, um, like I can be a total bitch, but I, uh, and I enjoy being, you know, mean and, and cynical, but I'm also, I think I'm very, I'm very trusting as well. I, t- I kind of take people at face value it to, to a fault. Like it, it really, it fucks me up a lot. Like I tend to just trust people. If they seem like nice people, I assume they're great. And I, um, I forget that people can be <laughs> not what they seem. Uh, in, in terms of, yeah, I, I, I really, I do, I love quite very openly and, you know, with, I'm, I'm very open with people until you slight me and then I'm like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Got me again! Uh, you, so you say you, you can sometimes be trusting to a fault. Like, what... When you're at your worst, who are you? Oh, God. Um, when I suppose I can be... I think the worst thing that... And something that I... I think something that I've really... Stru- I've really tried to be conscious of and change is... And I think this is very much a performer thing, is ego and jealousy, Probably, mm-hmm. and I think that that's something in and compare like because we are we do exist in a really competitive environment, and I think that in order to be a performer, you do have to have you are in a very close relationship with an ego that can be very big sometimes, but also extremely fragile. So I think one thing that I've really tried to do is you know in recognizing that that's not nice uh is to remove ego from as much of my self as i can and my decision making and you know you can still feel stuff and i think that that's what that's what drives jealousy as well especially like professional jealousy that i think is a real like especially for comedians it's like it, it can pop up oh yeah it's it's amazing like it's it's something that you have to say out loud a lot like early on in my career, I was having a conversation with uh, Justin Hamilton, who listeners to the podcast will know, and you know also, about that idea that I said, if I'm ever being jealous of something that I would never say yes to if I was offered it, you have to stop me talking. Because that's always... Like, I think there is yeah. some... It's okay to sometimes be... I mean, I'll, I, I've used this example on the podcast before. Uh, when Ronnie Chang, who I absolutely love, uh, you know, and... When he got the Daily Show, I was also auditioning 
for the Daily Show. Like I'd auditioned a few times over the years and, you know, I'd been in for that. I would have loved to do a show like that. So when he gets yeah. that opportunity, there's a bit of me that's jealous of that. But the yeah. majority of me is very happy for him. And I think the bit of me that's jealous is a healthy bit. That's just me saying, no, I valued that thing and I would have liked to do it myself. And then you have a little instinctive jealousy. But for that sure. poison of being jealous of people's success in areas where if you were offered the same thing, you would say no oh. immediately is some of the most – and it can really eat you up. Yeah, you'd be like, how come they got asked to do Celebrity Apprentice? Or like, you know, you'd be like, no, like I wouldn't – I don't want to do that. <laughs> I think it's also – I think it's just, it is worth – like you say, it's worth saying out loud and just acknowledging it because I think that – like you say, it's fine to be like, I w- I want that thing. I want to do that. That's that's normal. But I also think that it's when you can become like, I want that thing that that person has. Therefore, like I hate that person, or like I'm. <laughs> it just makes you. That's I think when you're at your worst. It just when you are acting from a place of jealousy. It's like, firstly, so yeah, obvious. It's not a good look. Everyone else can smell it on you, mate. It's, <laughs> Don't stop. First. It's a, Take a step Pong. back, shush it, because this is, no, no. Doesn't, it's not a smell that is good on anyone. No. It's very bad. All right, so I'm going to flip it now, and I'm going to take out of this equation when you're on stage entertaining people. That's out, you can't answer with that. I'm going to ask when you're at your best. Oh, um, oh just on a bloody horse, <laughs> moving some cattle through a, through a gate. Um, <laughs> when am I at my best? I think, uh, I think, okay, on the flip side of the, of the jealousy thing, I think that being like, knowing that you are accepting that you're going out of date or that you're changing or an idea is going out of date. I think that that's something that I am proud of in a way like if I look at stuff and go like oh that has changed I have changed I have progressed I think progression and change is really good and I think that speaks as well to the discomfort thing because I think if you get if you get stuck in discomfort and jealousy and all those sorts of like negative things you actually don't get to change and I think I often think about that when you see like people being like oh no one's funny anymore. It used to be way funnier back in the day. It can't be funny anymore. It makes me wonder, like, were you, were you ever? But it, it, you don't want to be like the last – you don't want to be like the last doctor still using leeches, you know? Like, you want you want shit to change, and I think that being a part of that is, is good. So I think when you – that's probably the, the most powerful, best thing that I can – no, I, I love Maybe. that because I think that is super important. And I think if you can embrace that, you know, that idea, and I agree with you. Like, I think that if comedy is not set in stone, it, it, like that's just a misunderstanding of what comedy is. The idea that you can't yeah. tell the same joke as you told 50 years ago, good. That means yeah, well, if, if our industry had not progressed anything, if society had changed substantially in that time and our industry was still exactly the fucking same, like that just makes absolutely no sense. So sad. It's sad. You're, it's like, what do you want to do, jokes about like Paul Keating? Like right. what, are you, what, what are you talking about? I mean, my... my None j- of this gear's landed anymore. My J-curve stuff isn't... Guys, <laughs> you know... Well, I've got yeah, this great yeah, Bob totally. Hawke impersonation I'm about to do. Ah, guys! <laughs> He's got 
got big eyebrows. Guys, wait, hang on. I've got a Yoda. I'll get you back. But, you know, it is contextual. And, of course, as times change, then, of course, that's going to be uncomfortable. Is there stuff that you have done yourself that you do look back on and I mean there's plenty and I've spoken about many of it much of it on this this podcast before from my own perspective but is there stuff in your own career that you've had to look back on and go oh if I had my time over I would not do that again oh for sure yeah definitely I think um I mean nothing specific it's not like I used to do like (laughs) you were the original Jonah from Tonga I know it yeah okay (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) yeah it's not like I did anything that bad or anything um I think like language has changed probably if stuff had been recorded there's certain you know use of type of words that have changed um i probably uh there are yeah there are definitely things that have changed but i think it's also it's uh, my intentions have always been good uh but yeah i think uh, i think also uh, it's less that the things that I did in the past are irrelevant. It's just like it's a nice thing to be – Not sorry, it's less that they are uh, offensive and more that it's become irrelevant. Like certain things – like Dave, for instance, it's like I, you don't, I don't, don't need to do that anymore because that particular conversation has moved on um, to a different place and that's kind of feeling your own irrelevance in that way is good. You know, and I think a lot of the conversation about like female comedians and stuff, we've gotten to the point where it's like everyone knows it's like, right. oh, it wasn't like being a female yeah. comedian. Like it's become a cliche. So that's good. That's yeah. a good thing. It is good, isn't it? It's like it, it does finally get to the point where you're like, okay, now everybody understands this is a terrible thing to ask. It's still going to occasionally get asked earlier on this yeah, podcast, well, but in a different context. It's an interesting thing to talk about. It is, I mean, it is, an, yeah, a valid and interesting thing to talk well, about. Well, I, it's it's I like, think it's nice now yeah. that we can actually talk about it in an interesting way because we can't learn from people's bad experiences and try to be better if we can't listen to them talk about those experiences. But I also understand how draining it must be to constantly be asked about those opinions, particularly by people who have no skin in the game to actually address any of those things or change it. They just want to hear you complain about it and then they will just go back to their normal job and uh, not do anything about it at all. I like complaining as much as the next person. Oh, you know, don't get me wrong. Complaining and giving advice. Mm. Like, blue, <laughs> September, feels great. Okay, two more questions and we're done. Uh, so, firstly, um, I have a magic wand. I don't, but like for the sake of this hypothetical question, I have a magic wand. And I can grant you the ability to do anything in the world, any skill you can have immediately. You don't have to practice it. You don't have to have your 10,000 hours. You can just immediately have this skill. What skill would you like to have? Oh, can I have like magic skills, like flying? Any sort of skill. You can interpret it in any way you would like. If you say flying, well, some people do say flying, there will be follow-up questions. Um, I, I mean, my my instinctive response is flying, which okay. is, I know is like a, I should have, I should say like the, the power to, to change wealth distribution or something, but <laughs> can I say no, flying? That's Firstly, that's not a special power. <laughs> flying is a special power. But sorry. Okay. But I do fly. like to ask when people say flying, I've got follow up questions. Okay. If tomorrow you could fly. Yeah. Do you fly in secret? Do you fly publicly? How do you use your ability to fly? How do you incorporate it into your life? Do you become a full-time flyer? Are you still a comedian? Like, what are you doing with your power of flight? Oh, I'd, I'd do it secretly. Mm. 
and then just start flying in the mm. middle of a show, a show. but like an yeah. open mic, like just like <laughs> like not even <laughs> like I'd pop down to the friend in hand and then I'd just <laughs> <laughs> just do like a tight five and then just very slowly start hovering off the ground. Like just so that only the first couple of rows oh, could yeah. see it. Well, in that room in particular, there's not a rake or anything. So only the first couple of rows could see it. Yeah. And all the people down the, the front of the like, break would be like, she's, she's flying. She's flying. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of her yeah. bits. <laughs> She'll be flying exactly. much higher when she's in a theatre. Yeah, you'd be like in like a really low ceiling back room of a pub, like all hunched over. <laughs> Once people find out that you can fly, it it opens itself up to a range of scientific experiments and people wanting you to use your capacity to fly for the good of others. Would you be up for that or would you just use it for artistic and selfish purposes? I'd, yeah, no, I'd muck in. I'd let them have a... Yeah, but I don't like needles or anything, so I would, I would, yeah, I'd have a bit of an issue with the uh, the medical side of things. But I'd like whiz around the room for them and stuff. Yeah, (laughs) I'd let them watch. No needles, but if you want, I got half an hour on Thursday, and I'm happy to go down and whiz around the room. And whatever you pick up, I'm fine with that. But no needles. Yep. Final question. I have a time machine. It is a round trip on my time machine. You can go into the future. You can go into the past. You can go to a moment in your own life and change or observe it, but you don't have to. You can. Uh, you don't have to redistribute wealth and you don't have to kill Hitler. They are jobs I will give to other people. This is purely for your own purposes. What would you like to do? Oh, um, I would love to... Mm. That's a good one. Um, I think I, uh, I would love to go back to like early. <laughs> this is so dumb. Uh, early Bette Midler performance oh, yeah. when she used to perform in gay bathhouses mm. in the 1970s. That's. Just, I think that just, would be spectacular. Just to see it. Yeah, just to ha- just to hang out, just to see it. I mean, I'm not going to have a great time in a gay bathhouse, but I think that they, they would have been pretty well, s- spectacular I mean, shows. Bet, bet Midler will be enough. You don't have She's to. She's there. Yeah, like you know. Yeah. I mean, I know for some people it's dinner and a show, but for you, it can just be the show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think. I, yeah, maybe, and that. Yeah, like 1970s New York vibes. It would be yeah. pretty fun. I love it. Hey, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, what can we plug? Firstly, Bossy Bottom is on Amazon Prime, so we can definitely yeah, sorry. plug that. You it can is. get a free trial and then Bezos doesn't get any money. You know what? It's one of those He doesn't need it. He does not need it. You can get a free trial. You could watch all the comedy specials in one month. But we also live in a world where, you know, like you've probably got Amazon Prime. We've been in a global pandemic. Yeah, you've I run do. out of things to watch. You've probably got Amazon Prime. So make make sure you go and watch uh, Zoe's special on Amazon Prime. What else can we plug? Um, I am doing some shows coming up in Sydney, which will be announced very soon. This okay, is, I haven't great. announced it yet. But, yeah, there'll be some, some shows coming up in Sydney and I'll be I'll popping around, whizzing around the room <laughs> here and there. I mean, it'll be great. Follow me on Twitter and it'll be on there. I'll pop it up. Okay, beautiful. Where can people, uh, what's your Twitter handle? It's just at Zoe Coombsma. Uh, Zoe, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.